The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, writing in New York Magazine today. Rebecca Traister has an article titled, What History Teaches Us About Today's Political and Racial Turmoil. I like history. I like teaching. I like Rebecca Traister. All right, this article is a rebuke to the idea that things aren't as bad as they were in the 60s, what Obama said the other day. So Traister makes the comparison, not to the 60s, but to 1919, the Red Summer. She writes, this violent American summer took place in the midst of political and international agitation that eerily mirrors what's happening around us today. You know, many surfaces have some reflexive property. It doesn't make them a mirror. So here are some ways in which she says 2016 is like 1919. She says, in the wake of war, European empires were in collapse and borders were being redrawn. Today, no European borders are being redrawn. No European empires are in collapse. In fact, there are no European empires. She writes, the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 had sparked Marxist uprisings in several countries. While in the U.S., anarchist terrorists that summer sent a spate of letter bombs to prominent businessmen and politicians. No spate, no mass anarchist movement, no Bolsheviks. Yeah, Arab Spring began five years ago, not two years ago, and there was civil war in Libya, Yemen, and Syria, and there were new governments in Egypt and peaceful change in Tunisia. But 1919, there were a dozen communist bona fide revolutions. There were half a dozen non-communist revolutions. Maybe you heard of Zapata in Mexico or the Easter uprising in Ireland. I guess you could say tumult then, tumult now, but the scale is so much greater. This is always the flaw of these comparative arguments. We're going through a tough time then, or Iraq war to Vietnam, 57,000 dead, 8,000 dead. The numbers matter. She goes on to quote an expert uh, with the Crunk Feminist Collective who says, I'm thinking about the global instability of that period and Brexit and all the demographic shifts happening in Europe. Brexit? The Brexit was an ill-considered decision to exit an economic member organization. That organization sets trade policy and agricultural production rates. The instability of 1919 was post-World War I. 15 to 20 million people were dead. Yes, in Syria, the death toll is 400,000 and refugees are pouring into Europe, but there's just no comparison. The entire world was ripped asunder then. Today, especially with Brexit, some of the world rejiggers a bit after a snit. Then, fascism thrived. Today, we're told fascism is represented in the form of Trump. But if Trump loses by the greatest margin a Republican has lost by in 50 years, what does that say about fascism? Then, socialism swept through the world. The comparison today is Bernie Sanders. He did better than expected, still lost the nomination, and he championed social democratic philosophies which are widely embraced throughout the world. Whatever time you're living in seems like the most of everything. It's the most important. It's the most chaotic. It's the scariest. It's the most exciting. That doesn't make it so, historically speaking. And today, yes, there's anger, there's rage, there's confusion. And yes, masses of people are taking to the streets of this country. They're tying up traffic. They're making trouble for more comfortable elements in the community. And they're searching for an elusive and some might say illusory goal. But Pokemon Go will, like so much else, fade over time. 
On the show today, I spiel about Rudy Lies Matter. But first, it's another visit from the hard-charging, hard-wired, goal-oriented Maria Konnikova as we ask type A personalities, are they bullshit? When it comes to diabetes, I'd say type 1's worse than type 2. But when it comes to personalities, I'd say a lot of people want to be type A. Or at least they call other people type A. Or they make excuses and say, I'm not really type A. Which brings me to my next point. I'm not sure I know what type A personality even means. Which brings me to my third, or possibly if I was taking notes, 16th point. Type A personality. Is that bullshit? Well, here to play... Is That Bullshit? is our resident bullshitologist. She is the author of, among other books, The Confidence Game and uh, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. It's Maria Konnikova. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. So what is type A personality? Do I have it? Where can I pick some up? Well, that's a very good question because, as it turns out, researchers do not agree ah. on what type A personality is. When people is. say it, is there a general agreement about what they mean? I think it means uh, intense people, driven people. These days, I think that when you say colloquially type A, that that's exactly what it means. Someone who's ambitious, someone yep. who's a go-getter, right. all good things. Now, the funny thing is that when type A originally came into the psychology literature in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, it was not a good thing. It was because because of connection to cardiovascular disease. And it didn't mean all of these positive things. Originally, it meant someone who can't deal with stress very well. Super stressed out. Who wants to exert control over everything, even Mm. things that they can't control. And so this guy, Howard Friedman, said, is there a connection between these sorts of tendencies, kind of aggression, over hyper-controlling ability Type, uh-huh. of, uh, type of behaviors and cardiovascular disease. Because it's funny, I'll get to the cardiovascular component in a moment, because it's funny as you say those things and list those traits in my mind, I'm sure in the listener's mind, they're saying, oh yeah, hyper control, exerting control, almost a uh, neuroticism, which is, I guess, a phrase that is in disuse. But at the same time, if you said hyper control, exerting control, feeling a lot of stress, instead of pairing it with driven, you could pair it with inundated. You could pair it with someone who's, you know, sitting in a corner, almost catatonic that they're suffering from anxiety. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because the reason that people originally started saying, well, maybe there are two types of personality, type A and type B, and type B is kind of more relaxed, go Mm -hmm. with the flow, like see what happens type of thing. It happened when productivity started going on the rise in the 1950s and people said, oh my God, everyone is working all the time. Basically the refrain that you hear today, that's how people reacted to the 50s. They said, oh, you know, the post-war boom, we're, we're driving ourselves so hard. Is this killing us? Is this making us sick? Are there different personality types that deal with this differently? And so mm-hmm. you have the type A's, and they're the ones who like feel the need to control everything, who get really aggressive about it, and the type B's who are kind of more relaxed. And the type B's probably do better, and the type A's probably actually health-wise end up not doing as well. There was also some interesting data from monkeys um, going on at the time that showed that kind of the alpha male monkeys. The alpha and the omega. So it wasn't type B. Omega is the last letter of the Greek Greek alphabet, but I guess it would be too uh, insulting to people to call them type Z's. (laughs) Well, uh, yes, I, I think so. But also 
A and B is really nice because you start having these sorts of acronyms because A can start standing for aggressive. It can mm-hmm. start standing for ambitious if you mm-hmm. want it to be. I'm not actually sure what, what, what B would be for relaxed, but in the 80s Bro, and 90s. Bucolic. Yeah, something like that. But then people started deciding that there was going to be a type C and a type D. Okay. And type exactly. And type C was going to be conscientious, and uh-huh. type D was going to be depressive. Oh. Um, and then there's been research now on type C and type D as well. But along the way, nobody actually ever quite agreed what type A was, and how to funny. measure it. And it's funny if we just ordered our alphabet differently, like if alphabetical order were different, then our four major personality types would be different. We'd struggle if X came forth. We'd struggle to define xenophobic instead of depressive. I don't even know. <laughs> well, and, and the funny thing is that this kind of four personality type actually hails back to the ancient Greeks, mm-hmm. which has been totally disproven that there are you know people who are phlegmatic because they have too much phlegm and people people who are um, sanguine because they have a lot of blood yes. um, and they're f- four humors. And so the four humors kind of map on to type A, type B, type C, type D. But type A actually caught on. Could, even, let me just pause yeah, and say please. a couple things about the Greeks. One, credit to them for the alpha and omega thing. That yes, was them. Absolutely. Two, never understood sanguine. Well, understood it, but it just seems to mean contradictory things. Sanguine, sanguinary, ruddy, a uh, hell, hardy, flushed of face. So, so that can mean, you know, blood bloody and intense, but it could also mean sanguine, like you're very calm, you're very yeah. soothed. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange it. word. Hate it. Strange word. Yeah. Yeah, well, we won't go into the four humors, but we will say that type A became quite popular because there was this very big study mm-hmm. that was done that came out in the 70s that linked type A personality to an increased risk of heart, heart disease. Um, they said, oh, these types of people, they are working too hard. Now, unfortunately, in the late 80s, early 90s, it turned out that there was a lot of problems with the study, a lot of problems with the data, and that there's actually very little link, partly because no one can agree what the hell type A personality is. And depending on how you measure it, some people are high in it and some people are not high in it. And then you give them a different construct and it flips. The people who were high are suddenly not type A and the people who were not type A are suddenly seemingly type A. Right. Because if you say, give me some exemplars of the, uh, some people who embody it, I'd say, well, like Louis Black, right? Clutching at his necktie, playing the role of anger in Inside Out, but also female version, maybe someone like Ariana Huffington or Martha Stewart, but they're all about like intensely jamming in yoga into their lives and being (laughs) actually more relaxed than you. You know, they take type A to that level. Their poses are better than yours. Yes, they're very serious about it. If those are the embodiment of this thing and they're polar opposites, maybe this thing isn't really a thing. Right, right. And and people started figuring out that, oh, actually, if you are – kind of type A in some of the positive ways, like if you're ambitious, if you're driven, then you might have purpose in life. And purpose in life is actually good. It makes you live longer. Yeah. And living longer is the number one marker of health, right? Yeah. How, how long do you live? And it actually can be protective. Whereas if you're type B, if you're re- people have more agreement on what type B is. Yeah. Kind of if you're just laid back and relaxed, that is actually not always protective. That can be really bad because that can get you into pretty shitty situations and you don't take as good 
care of your health because yes. you don't care as much. I think that's a huge difference and maybe it changed since the 50s when the ideas of nutrition and eating were you got to get enough. Uh, there was scarcity and now that there is abundance, the type B personality might be the couch potato and you would say, oh, they'll be in poor health, more stressors in your life. The type A would be more likely to go out and get the exercise they need. Right. So basically I think what you're seeing is that you can tell any story. Yes. That, that there's actually – and you can find data for a lot of this stuff because personality is really context dependent and it really matters which particular flavor we're talking about because, you know, if you say ambitious, there's different types of ambition and there are people who are very ambitious in their professional life, say, but they're very relaxed and they know how to have fun kind of in their in their personal life. And there are people who are very relaxed in their professional life, but they're very ambitious. You know, they want to be the best parasailer in the world, So, <laughs> but they're not professional at it like that is their drive, but they have a purpose. That's their purpose. So what are they? Type A, type B? The boundaries, even if you define them clearly, which, by the way, they're still not defined clearly, but even if we were to, they blur and it really depends on the situation. Ironically enough, the only data that seems to be borne out is about the type C, because it's not really a type. It's about something very specific, conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. How conscientious are you? People who are conscientious tend to take better care of themselves. Um, They tend to sometimes be a little hypervigilant about their health. But as people get older, that's good, because then you catch things very early on rather than say, oh, it's probably nothing. Oh, it's probably nothing. Oh, it's probably nothing. Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, so at what point should I change? You got any advice (laughs) two years from now? Because this is all coming to a head. Um, I also do find that people will often say, annoyingly so, oh, I, you know, I'm very type A. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, I'm very type B. Right. And I don't think you ever hear people say, like, I'm very aggressive and I really need <laughs> to control everything about my life. Right. I mean, these days, type A, it's so funny they how might differently say, it's it, changed. Yeah, it could mean detail-oriented or, right. yeah. Right, but those are very different things. Mm-hmm. And no one, yeah, no one says I'm type B. No, one, Certainly no one says I'm type C. And certainly no one says I'm type D. Have you ever met someone who's like, oh, I'm, de- I'm depressive? I've met, I'm a type D. No, but it's hard for them to muster the words, to be honest. I want to go back to one thing before we yeah. render our verdict. So it was originally, or at least early on, they started researching type A and the correlation to heart disease. What did they think they found out and what did they really find out with either heart attacks or heart disease? So they thought that they found out that people who are type A are at greater risk for heart disease. So which pers- which types, which uh, personality traits that are more tangible than this, as we've been discussing, ephemeral type B designation are correlated to um, heart attacks, so if any. aggression might yes. be correlated. Is that, it, um, and they did attack. find there's, that. There's some data on that. Yes. But once again, I really have to stress that the data isn't particularly strong. It's very difficult to measure these sorts of outcomes because for the most part, they're all self-report measures. So it's what you're telling me about yourself on this questionnaire where you're checking off boxes and writing things down. And the other thing is what we were talking about earlier, context. Context really matters. It's really difficult to say, you know, I'm aggressive. I'm not aggressive. Maybe I'm a really aggressive driver. Maybe I get really mad when I'm behind the wheel. I don't mm-hmm. actually drive, so so I can use this example. Could be, yeah. <laughs> so I could be. Who knows? But I'm really kind of laid back, sanguine. When it comes to other things or phlegmatic when it comes to others. Full of phleg. Um, Okay. So let's uh, render our verdict and then have a follow-up. Type A personality, is that bullshit? That's kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. 
Is it actually used in psychological literature anymore? Has it fallen into disfavor? It has fallen into disfavor, but people still use it. So I actually pulled up um, an annual review of psychology um, paper from 2014, which was one of the co-authors was one of these guys who did the original meta-analysis longitudinal study back in the 70s. Um, and he still references type A. Yeah. But well, he's, he's, he's wedded to it. But he's a little yeah, wedded to it. Yeah, it's part of it. his brand. So, so people still use it, but people never – it really fell out of favor because nobody could really agree on what it was or what it was measuring or what Ma- it meant. Maria Konnikova, she plays Is That Bullshit with us. She is the author of The Confidence Game, and she has turned me into a type T personality. Thankful. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. The deaths of Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and five Dallas officers have caused me, like any decent person, a lot of grief and a lot of frustration. We all grieve differently, but how I grieve has actually been a source of frustration because I like to rely on facts. Statistics console me like scripture consoles some people. My good book is the Bureau of Justice Statistics. The frustration is over the dearth of empiricism in the wake of tragedy. I've gone on and on about this, but think about what it means that our government does not keep stats on cop shootings. We keep stats on murder because we care about the crime of murder. We memorialize the names of victims of terrorism. We know every name, rightly so, because we shouldn't forget. We keep stats on soldiers, Marines, airmen who are killed in war because we find them important too. We keep stats on everything from car accidents to lost dogs because those are things we care about. And yet when it comes to keeping stats on civilians killed by police, we simply don't care. Or maybe we do care, but what we care about is not confronting what those stats suggest. But the Guardian and the Washington Post do keep stats and the number from the full year, last full year, 2015, 300 black men killed by cops. It's the Guardian's number. We don't have stats on the justifiability of these shootings, almost all officially deemed justifiable. We can compare it to the number of whites killed by cops, 577 in that same Guardian notation. That's a uh, two to one ratio, roughly, where in life, there's a five to one ratio of white people to black people that tells you how disproportionate it is. We also know that there were 7,000, approximately 7,000 black people overall murdered in the last year for which we have stats for that. Half of all murder victims were black. You put that all together, You sprinkle in a heap of racial insensitivity and you get this jumble of a pronouncement from Rudy Giuliani on Face the Nation. And you've got to teach your children that the real danger to them is not the police. The real danger to them, 99 out of 100 times, 9,900 out of 1,000 times are other black kids who are going to kill them. That's the way they're going to die. A couple of things about that statement. One, when he expands 99 out of 100 to 990 out of 1,000, that's actually the same exact fraction. He just multiplied by 10. He didn't further emphasize the likelihood. It also approaches a slander to even engage in the comparison. The expectation of cops and of murderers are quite different. In fact, they're the opposite. But he's also wrong. He's way off on the numbers. A black person is less than a 99% chance of being murdered by another black person if he is murdered. It's something approaching 5% of all killed black people were killed by cops as opposed to killed by black civilians. But all of this knowledge and all of this use of facts gave me some offense and it gave me anger at Giuliani, but also gave me direction. It animated me. It helped me grieve a little. 
Which brings me to Michael Eric Dyson, who thwarted that process. Now, Giuliani, he's like Lester Maddox, but I think Professor Dyson is a self-styled Huey Newton. I don't disagree with most of Dyson's policy prescriptions or his intent, but his rhetoric, it's so unfair, it's so off-putting, it's anti-intellectual, it leaves me, if anything, more frustrated than with what Giuliani said. I wrote Giuliani off long ago as a cartoon demagogue. So if you read Dyson's essay in the New York Times, you encountered this opening paragraph. We black America are a nation of 40 million souls inside a nation of more than 320 million people. And I fear now it is clearer than ever that you, white America, will always struggle to understand us. That's fine. That's probably true. Only that's not what Dyson wrote. That's what they printed after the cops in Dallas were killed. But the original essay, which is the one that I saw online and got me upset, started with these words. It is clear that you, white America, will never understand us. So the author goes from feeling probably legitimately worrying that we will never surmount this chasm of understanding to witheringly reproachful, saying that we will never surmount this chasm of understanding to hopeless and full of reproach. He writes... You will never understand the helplessness. You do not condemn these cops. We thunderously protest a few cops who shoot to death black people who you deem to be mostly thugs. Well, I don't. None of that's true about me. Hey, if you want to frustrate a person, tell that person what he thinks. He's ascribing to me positions I don't have. He's telling me that I do have them. And then in sentences like this, neither will your smug insistence that you are different, not like that ocean of unenlightened whites satisfy us any longer. He's taking away any chance I have of disagreeing with him. I can't. I'm incapable. My race has rendered me unable to feel empathy or change my mind or experience enlightenment or disagree with people like Rudy Giuliani. He writes, whiteness is blindness. It is the wish not to see what it will not know. Hashtag white ain't woke. All right, that was me. That wasn't Dyson. But what Dyson does is he constructs an unfalsifiable assertion. It's worse than unfalsifiable. If I claim that I'm the exception to a racist mindset, he actually tells me that I have compounded the pain. He writes, it makes the killings worse to know that your disapproval of them has spared your reputations and not our lives. What Dyson has done is bullying. Yeah. It's from a place of legitimate pain. But I do much better when I'm challenged to think of the world in a new way than when I'm told I could never possibly get it. I'm a lost cause. My presence worsens the most horrific tragedies that I don't actually despair. It's all fake. It's all unearned. It's all illegitimate. I do much better when I listen to the words of our president who says, With an open heart. We can abandon the overheated rhetoric and the oversimplification that reduces whole categories of our fellow Americans, not just to opponents, but to enemies. Of course, Michael Eric Dyson says Obama is not Moses. Obama is Pharaoh. Just like my whiteness blinds me to a mindset, Obama's position apparently binds him to a role. Luckily, I don't believe to that degree in predetermined outcomes. I choose to put my faith in a message more along these lines. Hope does not arise by putting our fellow man down. It is found by lifting others up. (laughs) 
That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson thinks the times we're living through are a lot like the summer of 1990. You know, Back to the Future 3 and Dick Tracy. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, notices there's a lot of hanky-panky going on, and that's why these times are like the summer of 1966. Tommy James and the Shondells. My baby does the hanky-panky. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Well, we got a new prime minister in Britain, June 1970. Edward Heath takes over. The right honorable Edward Heath takes over in Britain. That's what it's like. The gist. Clearly, it's like the summer of 69. What? With my first real six string over at the five and dot. Oom pru, de pru, du pru, and thanks for listening.